quite a while ago, I started um, exploring eating disorders. I was stricken by the fact that, of course, there is any amount of studies on media discourses that are supposedly triggering eating disorders, images and models, etc., etc., anorexia websites. But there is very little research on media discourses on eating disorders themselves. So I'm very glad to be in this workshop which focuses on that. And when I first started looking at media coverage of eating disorders and I kind of browsed all kinds of databases, mainly LexisNexis and looking at popular media, etc., I noticed, you know, the obvious fact that has been uh, proven by more quantitative studies, that celebrities uh, figured very prominently. And so when I started doing a qualitative study on the media coverage of eating disorders, I decided to focus on the two most, probably still most prominent uh, celebrities with eating disorder, uh, Karen Carpenter, uh, who died of complications of anorexia in 1983. Uh, and since you're not my undergraduate students, uh, you uh, maybe will know who Karen Carpenter was. Who? Karen Carpenter. So, uh, last millennium. And Karen Carpenter basically popularized anorexia for the first time. And uh, I would argue that she became more or less a kind of a symbol of the so called goody girl diagnostic uh, notion of anorexia. And then, since we are now in, in the UK, uh, obviously the, the, the second celebrity that made uh, eating disorders famous was Princess Diana, who in the famous 1995 panorama. Uh, interview where she was talking about there being three in this marriage. Um, she also revealed that she had experienced bulimia. And she was, you know, one of the first uh, celebrities to give bulimia a face because it had been kind of been hidden under anorexia before that. And I would argue that she became idolized as well as deplored for kind of her feminine qualities, kind of slightly different from Karen Carpenter. And unfortunately, I'm not going to give you a lowdown of my methods because I kind of thought that I would give you more of a taster of what I found. Uh, but this analysis is based on both quantitative and qualitative analysis of UK and U US news coverage uh, of these two celebrities, what, what's then known as LexisNexis and now has changed into Nexus. And uh, I typed in anorexia, Karen Carpenter, bulimia, uh, uh, Princess Diana and I analysed uh, peaks in the coverage. But today I will more or less present kind of themes that I found that you know have to do with these two celebrities. And first, you know, here is uh, Karen Carpenter, and I would argue that she became pretty much a kind of the, the, the model girl for the diagnostic and statistical manuals, uh, but at that time quite a new definition of anorexia. And here we have United Press International's uh, kind of uh, coverage of her death, where it says Carpenter suffered from anorexia nervosa, which is strikes weight-conscious teenagers that have a fatal obsession of being thin. Most of these anorexics are teenagers from middle and upper class backgrounds, uh, and most of them are perfectionists. And here we have Dr. Marvin Gillick. So this is a kind of a clinical discourse, because anorexia at that point was quite a, an unknown uh, phenomenon. I would argue, based on my analysis, that Carpenter became popularized as synonymous with the clinical definition of anorexia in the media at that point, because it was new and people didn't really know that much about her. And so she was understood to be um, 
She was understood to be duped by media images of thinness, which is hardly surprising because she was also herself a media icon. And she was also understood to be kind of irrational, irrationally obsessed about being fat, so having a, the famous body image disorder. She was seen to be a perfectionist, you know, she would do her vocals over and over again, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, trying too hard. And she was also depicted as having the, a prototypical uh, dominating family, with particularly dominating my mother, as well as brother, which formed the carpenter's duo with her. And of course she was actually, well she was coming from middle class, so she fit the diagnostic criteria that, in that sense as well. And so this kind of conception of anorexia was at that point canonized by, for instance, Hilda Brook, who wrote the famous book, The Golden Cage, you know, where the anorexic is the sparrow in the golden cage, she has everything, she's from a middle class uh, background, she wants, gets good grades, she wants to be beautiful and thin, etc. And then this thing traps her. And it was also popularized by Carpenter's own therapist, Stephen Liebenkron, who wrote a book which is, you know, quite, uh, uh, you know, revealingly titled The Best Little Girl in the World. So this is the, the clinical side of it. But, uh, strangely enough, both Carpenter and Princess Diana, Diana had quite a sort of a, the, the coverage of their eating disorders was quite political, which I think might be unusual. Uh, so after her death, Carpenter's kind of soft rock, and I will soon play a little clip, uh, and uh, her kind of wholesome image was both eulogized as well as associated with this kind of sickness that had, you know, kind of gotten her. And so there were these juxtapositions in the media, also in the mainstream media, kind of newswire, kind of LA Times and, and so on, uh, where, you know, her kind of uh, soft rock, rock was juxtaposed to hard rock, anti-establishment 1960s to her, representing the conservative 1970s, the counterculture of the 60s to kind of family values that allegedly her music uh, embodied. And here, is the, here are the Carpenters with President Nixon, because they went to the White House and sang for President Nixon. So they were kind of associated with this conservative turn in US politics. And here is a kind of a mainstream coverage of this political kind of angle associated press. The carpenters whose bright smiles and youthful looks personified their fresh sound and they recorded these hits. And this came at a time when pop music was dominated by anti-war and anti-establishment and hard rock sound. So they kind of became pro-war, pro-establishment and, and soft rock. So this was kind of the political angle given to them. And now I'm going to uh, do an experiment. <laughs> I'm going to try to show you a YouTube clip. Let's hope this works. Okay, and what I will show you is a little clip from an underground movie directed by Todd Haynes, which is called Karen Carpenter, a superstar of Karen Carpenter's story. So that was uh, Todd Haynes's um, uh, film, which clearly juxtaposed this kind of or associated Karen Carpenter with the middle class uh, mass culture and suburb, you know, the panning of the identical row of houses in Downey, California, you know, with the dominating, grating mother, <laughs> now we found your singer. Uh, and it also kind of goes on to, to, and you know, also the sort of, you know, the way in which the, the media and the, the music industry kind of staged her in a particular way. And it also kind of goes on juxtaposing uh, the Carpenter's music to the Vietnam War with kind of 
shots of bombs falling in Vietnam and Karen kind of singing in the background and so on. So it's quite sort of an interesting rendition. And so, uh, kind of like to conclude what I have to say about Carpenter, I think that Crown Carpenter, you know, in the early 1980s and in the 80s became a symbol of the kind of sick aspects of femininity in the media that was kind of, you know, produced through the discourse of anorexia. So she was lacking in independence because she was susceptible to media images or the media machinery, to family members, domination, etc. She was also engulfed by consumption because she represented middle-class mass culture, soft rock, shopping, freely dresses, kind of, you know, all these dainty things. Uh, and she was also kind of have, had a proneness for political conservatism, which is frequently associated uh, with femininity rather than the kind of progressive or radicalness of the, of the male subject. Uh, and I think that the good thing about this is that it draws critical attention to the limiting nation of, notion of traditional femininity as well as the 1970s and 1980s neoliberal uh, political culture, kind of the Nixon era family values and uh, later Reagan era family values discourse. But it also kind of, you know, and this is more hidden and less talked about, idealizes a kind of a rugged male autonomous self associated with the hard rock, etc. And it disparages things that are associated with femininity, like being soft, domesticity on the private sphere, consumption, you know, etc. And I think that that is quite a problematic feature of this discourse on carpenter and anorexia, even though it's frequently deemed quite progressive. Okay, move on. Diana, who, uh, you know, the bulimia discourse happened 10 years later, and she was first depicted in the media after the Panorama uh, interview as the survivor, where it sort of says that, you know, um, her description of bulimia as a survival mechanism was arresting. It became her means of protest, a survival strategy uh, which the palace did not re towards which the palace did not react with care but with contempt. An establishment saw it as an attack against itself and, you know, it's kind of proclaimed that to tell your true story is the most powerful thing to do. From Siberia to Sloan Square, and since we're in the UK, everybody knows what Sloan Square is, which is where Harrods and all the uh, you know, clothes shops are located, have redeemed their pain from the psychiatric wards, etc. So she was kind of speaking out her true voice against oppression by the palace, etc. But this kind of survivor discourse uh, was undercut by frequent depictions of Diana as being hysterical, you know, kind of the crazy woman. And, you know, here is Daily Mail, of course, my favorite newspaper. It makes my day every day. I read it every single day because it's so funny. Uh, you know, she has is claimed to have a borderline personality disorder being plagued by impulsive behavior, profound uncertainty of life goals, liability to become involved in intense but unstable relationships, producing regular emotional crises, throwing herself down the stairs, excessive efforts to avoid abandonment by Charles, allegedly, recurrent threats of, or acts of self-harm because it was known that, uh, that uh, Diana engaged in self-harm, and chronic feelings of emptiness. So basically she was depicted as the classical hysterical crazy woman. And then there was this theme that you know runs through the media coverage of Diana, where she's depicted as being caring. So she was caring for uh, AIDS charities, landmine victims, 
whatever. And so here she has been uh, depicted of going on mercy missions to comfort the sick and dying in the night. This was, you know, in 1995. To hospital patients where he, she says some will live and some won't, the princess says, but they all need love to be now loved while they are here. The, the media is littered with images of um, Diana holding children and kind of, you know, holding their hands and kind of cuddling them. This is her kind of caring uh, nature. And then she was also depicted as a kind of a new, transforming, flexible woman that kind of goes from the demure princess that was wedded in 1981 in this kind of cream cake uh, dress to becoming this, transforming into this woman of fantastic style that split her time between young sons she idolized and charities and humanitarian issues she dedicated her life to. Also, she kind of moved on from the, the royal marriage and she, here she's depicted with Jodie Alphayed on, on, on a yacht just before the tragic accident. And so if one wants to kind of say, well, okay, well, how is this uh, media coverage of Diana and eating disorder this time bulimia different from uh, Karen Carpenter? And a lot of times it's actually almost diametrically opposite. Uh, so Diana is adored and deplored as a symbol of femininity who reveals bulimia and reveals private problems, kind of Oprah Winfrey kind of a thing. She's also deplored as hysterical, overly emotional, etc. And opening up towards and caring for others rather than being independent. And being very flexible, kind of changing life, new missions, new partners, kind of continuously transforming rather than being kind of a stable uh, male self. And uh, this depiction of her does challenge what I think is a good thing, or interesting thing, at least against the coverage of Carpenter, the traditional notion of stable, autonomous male self, although sometimes it affirms this stable self when she's depicted as a hysteric. And in that sense, it's almost uh, opposite to the Carpenter coverage. But, you know, there's also another kind of undercurrent that, you know, this media coverage buttresses a kind of a new post-industrial flexible, emotionally insulated, interactive, do-it-yourself self, which is very much in tune with our contemporary uh, political and economic climate. Okay, well, what do we say in the end? Uh, I would say that, you know, looking at these two celebrities' media, <coughs> I think that in their cases, me, uh, eating disorders are mobilized to affirm uh, certain quite... Uh, you know, well delineated ideal selves. And these ideal selves change historically, although of course there's overlap, these are both still well alive in the media, from a kind of a post-war notion of autonomous male self to the more contemporary new flexible self that's more associated with femininity. And like I hope it has become clear in my presentation, I think that both of these uh, discourses have both politically and psychologically progressive or empowering, as well as disempowering features. You know, they are both kind of good and bad simultaneously. But what I see as the kind of a fundamental problem in this type of media coverage is that I think anorexia and bulimia are used to come up with strictly normative selves, what you should be like and what you shouldn't be like, and, and I think that this is particularly problematic when we talk about eating disorders, because I think a lot of times eating disorders are driven by a desire to attain some kind of normative self or body. And this doesn't mean people want to be like Kate Moss, 
but it's often a kind of a self-project. People want to transform themselves into some sort of an ideal. And what the media does is that it kind of, you know, delineates these ideals using eating disorders as a kind of a platform. And I, so I think that the more kind of prominent problem here is that media advocates a narrow normativity through its coverage of eating disorders rather than tries to cultivate something like kind of a reflexivity about the contradictions of such ideals and their ambiguity, which I kind of think would be psychologically more healthy when we are talking about anorexia and bulimia. Um, 